Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thanks for joining me today. Hope your day's been going well so far. Here we are, and it's uh, Tuesday, and that starts with Rob Bluey, my Washington, D.C. correspondent. He's also the executive editor over at the Daily Signal, and he's with me right now on the line. Rob, welcome. It's great to be back, Bill. Thank yeah, you. No kidding. It's been a busy week, and I'm curious to find out what's going on in our nation's capital. Yes, well, we have a lot of activity, as usual. It's also a, a busy week. We're keeping our eyes on Florida uh, because that's where CPAC is happening. That's always a, a big event that the Daily Signal uh, covers, and it'll be quite different this year because of the pandemic. They couldn't hold it in its normal location in Maryland, so they've uh, headed south uh, where uh, they're a little bit more hospitable to uh, <laughs> to, to gatherings of the, of the sort. But uh, let's uh, focus on Washington for the moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, you are absolutely correct that this is the week that Congress is back. Uh, The Senate is moving forward on a number of President Biden's nominees. And in the House, they are considering the COVID relief bill, uh, which includes that $15 minimum wage increase, which we talked about last Mm -hmm. week. Um, And that bill uh, is expected to pass the House uh, by a narrow margin. The Democrats have the narrowest of margins in the House. So really, uh, they can't afford to lose any more than five of their own uh, members of their party. Otherwise, it would be in jeopardy. I think Republicans will pretty pretty much uniformly be opposed to this. Uh, you may find a handful of crossovers, but that seems unlikely. And uh, there's deep frustration, I think, with, uh, with Republicans who uh, heard Joe Biden talk of compromise and uh, willing to meet them uh, uh, in certain ways. Um, and that's not been the case uh, this, this uh, early stage of his presidency. So Bill, um, I think the American people, though, are are anticipating, um, you know, getting some relief in in a variety of forms, and uh, COVID is still having a devastating impact. So uh, they want to make sure that uh, they can do whatever they can. I, unfortunately, I don't think that the all of the aid is as targeted and temporary as as should be, and uh, I think that's led some people to question. You know, we've already spent four trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. This adds another two trillion on top of it. Wow. And uh, and and you know, even uh, Biden has said that this might not be the last time he comes and asks for for more money. So um, a significant cost, uh, but COVID's obviously had a significant toll on our country. No kidding. Another $2 trillion in debt, and that happens pretty quickly. Do you know what the specifics are? I think we chatted about this last week, but what the breakdown will be uh, for payouts to families? Well, we're still looking at uh, $1,400. Okay. You might remember that uh, there were $600 payments uh, approved under under President Trump uh, mm-hmm. right before uh, the new year. Congress uh, decided to have a have a smaller amount. Um, uh, there there was some consternation with people who said, you know, Joe Biden promised 2000 I think Biden's saying, you know, look, <laughs> you got 600 already. You know, here's here's uh, the rest of uh, what I promised. Uh, type of deal. So yeah, it's uh, it's a situation where those direct payments um, will again be part of the package. Uh, of course, you know uh, the direct payments. Uh, that that's what I I mean when I talk about targeted relief. I think there are some individuals who who need the support more than others, and uh, there are some who haven't been impacted in terms of their their you know 
work uh, at all. I mean, they may have to work from home, but they haven't uh, had to face a layoff or, or an impact like, say, a, a small business or a restaurant might have uh, have had to do. So, yeah, there's um, there's an article on the Daily Signal, which um, which I'd encourage your listeners to check out. It says eight things you must know about the deeply flawed COVID-19 package. And uh, my colleague David Ditch goes through uh, those eight examples. And it, um, you know, really does uh, do a, a good job of, um, of outlining some of the big things. Another um, another thing that's in the bill is uh, is this. Uh, massive amounts of spending on education. Mm. Uh, but there's questions about whether it'll actually do anything to help reopen our schools. Um, so, you know, throwing money at the problem is something Washington is is good at, but uh, but actually holding people accountable and making sure that it's it's targeted in a way that helps is uh, is a routine problem coming from, uh, from our politicians. Mm-hmm. Rob, what's your understanding of the way the goalposts seem to be moving a little bit when it comes to the vaccine? Well, <laughs> they they do seem to be moving. I mean, I'm I'm grateful to see that the numbers are increasing every day. Uh, more and more people are are getting the vaccine. Uh, my parents uh, in in upstate New York have had their two doses. Uh, of course, they're uh, over 65, so they um, were among the first to, uh, to to take advantage of that opportunity. And uh, and Bill, I, I I think that the one of the you know we've talked in, in on the show in the past about uh, my 99 year old uh, great aunt who is um, <laughs> mm-hmm. who is uh, in a nursing home and uh, in upstate New York and she has had her two doses and fortunately they've been spared um, you know some of the problems at other nursing home facilities. But I saw a chart today that showed the number of cases in nursing homes has dropped significantly and I think that's because uh, that was a population that was prioritized and the healthcare workers um, have also been getting their vaccines. But you're absolutely right about the, the goalposts. I mean, it seems that uh, j- same thing with reopening schools. I mean, one minute we're hearing that it's uh, one day a week. Uh, <laughs> and then the next day, it's, you know, it's the president saying it's five days a week. So I think there's a lot of confusion about what the targets actually are. Um, when the Biden administration came into office, uh, the, the Trump administration had already surpassed the goal that the Biden administration had set for itself. So, uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, <laughs> there, there's some issues there. But I think that one of the most important things is that uh, they're ramping up production of the vaccine. There's going to be more and more people able to get it. And I think it's still going to be a high hurdle to achieve what President Biden has said by the end of July. Uh, all Americans can get a vaccine. Um, and uh, there's going to be a, a large number of people who I think are still, you know, reluctant to do it. Now, hopefully, as more and more people get the vaccine, they'll see that there aren't uh, aren't issues associated with it. But everybody's going to have a reaction one way or another. And uh, some might be minor, some might be bigger than others. But uh, I think that what we're seeing in terms of the drops in number of cases, it can be partially at least attributed to uh, more and more people getting the vaccine. Rob, I was reading in the Minneapolis paper today that Minnesota health officials announced today that 513 people in the state have tested positive along with one new death. Those numbers seem kind of low to me. They do seem low, Bill. And, and I, again, I think that uh, there's there's probably a variety of factors. Um, I, I wish I could say it was warmer weather and more people outside, <laughs> but uh, that's that's not necessarily the case for where you are or where I am. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I think that um, – Obviously, there were a lot of things happening over the holiday season, people getting together, probably spending time in, in close quarter uh, indoors uh, in a place where uh, where it was spreading um, more quickly than it had in, in the summer or fall. But I also think that, you know, people are 
are, are becoming, you know, <laughs> more accustomed to the, the steps that we have to take to combat this. Uh, hopefully they're practicing better hygiene in terms of hand washing. Uh, I think more and more people are probably wearing masks. Uh, and I think uh, obviously there's a, there's a certain percentage of the population. What is it up to about 13 or 14 percent now that's received the vaccine? So that's, um, you know, that's helpful. And remember, the people who are in the targeted population, um, those who are, are more vulnerable are, are the ones who are prioritized. So, uh, you know, we already know that younger people aren't necessarily impacted as greatly as uh, the older population. So, you know, that is probably having an impact as well. Mm-hmm. At the Daily Signal, Rob, great uh, interview that Virginia Allen did with Dr. Joel Zinberg. He's a medical doctor that talked about the New York uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo and his handling of the nursing home during COVID-19. It's a very interesting interview. I'd love for you to uh, share with my listeners uh, some of the highlights of that. Well, and it, 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 again, this is uh, this is something that's near and dear uh, to me because uh, with with somebody who um, has a family member in a nursing home in New York, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, I've been paying close attention. And uh, and yes, just to, just to back up for for your listeners, uh, Governor Cuomo, of course, was somebody who the media celebrated as as kind of a hero uh, during the early phase of of COVID. Um, his brother on CNN regularly had him on the program. There was a lot of friendly banter. Uh, he was holding daily news conferences. He was contrasted against President Trump as as being, you know, transparent and forthcoming. Well, what happened was the New York State Attorney General put out a report showing that uh, the the governor wasn't quite as transparent as he was claiming to be. Uh, There were a whole number of of deaths in nursing homes in New York that uh, were, were unreported. And uh, and the governor has been under fire from members of his own party in in New York. New York, of course, is a, is a heavily Democrat state, and uh, so for for him to fall out of favor with uh, with his own Democrats, I think is uh, says something. And so yes, Joel Zinberg is uh, is a medical doctor. He's also a contributor for the Manhattan Institute City Journal, and he spoke to the Daily Signal about uh, what's going on there in New York and and some of the the implications. And I think that uh, you know one of the things that that we all need to keep in mind here is that. We expect our, our political leaders to give us, uh, you know, good advice, the truth, hopefully, Bill. Uh, I mean, that's sometimes a stretch. But uh, in this case, uh, Cuomo clearly let down uh, the people of his state. And I think it's right to hold him accountable. And one of the things that you're seeing is even the state Senate trying to claw back some of the emergency powers they, they granted to the governor. Um, that's not something that's uh, unique to New York. Uh, other state legislatures are trying to do that as well, fearing that the state executives have overstepped their authority. And then the um, Congressman uh, Kim, who apparently had a very threatening phone call from um, Mayor or Governor Cuomo, uh, and that was something that he's got to now answer to as well. Correct. Uh, Assemblyman Ron Kim is, is the it. name, and uh, and the governor said that uh, he would destroy uh, the assemblyman. Um, and yes, uh, that that did get out. And you know, again, to have a a Democrat um, warring with another Democrat in New York, eh, maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's 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 sometimes uh, you know bare knuckles politics there in, in New York City. But yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a situation that is is worth watching. Um, and I can understand uh, some of the frustration of the voters in New York who believe that they were told something and only to come to find out later that uh, it was uh, an entirely different circumstance. So there are um, there are certainly ramifications for what this means. Uh, Cuomo will will 
probably be running for re-election and uh, could now face a challenge from the left. Uh, there's already been frustration. Uh, he already faced a, a, a primary the last time around. And uh, and uh, yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's uh, it's a situation for for all political leaders to pay close attention to. And and Bill, I think that one of the things, you know, if I if I could just for a moment, I mean, this is a great example of how uh, the media treats individuals, treats Republicans and Democrats quite differently. Uh, in fact, I was reading on Friday night a report from the New York Times about two politicians who were under fire last week. One of them was uh, Ted Cruz for taking a trip to uh, Cancun, uh, which he immediately turned around and returned to Texas. And one was Andrew Cuomo. And the amount of coverage they gave Cruz compared to Cuomo was just unbelievable. You would think that uh, Cuomo uh, and, and the scandal that is surrounding him would be sig more significant uh, in the media's eyes, but it wasn't. And I think that that's uh, another example of media bias and why there's such frustration and a lack of trust with, uh, with the news organizations. Yeah. So we try to strive to do better at The Daily Signal, and, and hopefully your listeners uh, will, will tell us if we're not, and we always like to hear that feedback. I appreciate that. Rob Blue is my guest. We'll take a short break. When we come back, lots more with Rob. He is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can head to dailysignal.com to learn more about uh, Rob and his uh, amazing gift, uh, gifted writers. We'll be right back. I'm back with Rob Bluey, my Washington, D.C. correspondent. We're talking about everything, anything and everything that's going on in Washington, D.C. in our limited time we have. Rob, let's talk about uh, Xavier Becerra. He looks to be uh, kind of uh, not very pro-life. No, that's uh, that. That may be an understatement, Bill. Uh, he is uh, he is definitely uh, somebody who, uh, who who views the the values of the pro life movement in a in a very different way than say his predecessor mm -hmm. uh, in in the job. Uh, Xavier Bracera is, of course, uh, President Joe Biden's nominee for the Department of Health and Human Services. This is an important post, uh, obviously important right now because of the role of that agency when it comes to COVID. But uh, in terms of setting so many policies with regard to our, our health care and abortion uh, specifically, he has found himself in a situation where uh, he is on, uh, on pretty thin ice in mm -hmm. terms of his ability to get through uh, the Senate on confirmation. Already one of uh, President Biden's other nominees, Neera Tandon, who is uh, up for Office of Management and Budget, is unlikely to be able to uh, to win confirmation because one Democrat, Joe Manchin of, of West Virginia, has outlined his opposition. So, uh, an oppos you know, a similar statement from uh, Manchin on on Bracera would almost certainly sink his confirmation as well. And uh, it's not unusual for presidents to have uh, have at least one nominee or maybe a couple even uh, not win confirmation. It's been pretty smooth sailing for for Biden's other nominees. But Becerra has has inspired a, a kind of um, a strong revolt uh, among conservatives and particularly the pro-life community uh, because of his positions. He's a former member of Congress who then went on to become attorney general of California. So he has quite a record um, in, in his public life. And it's not good. I saw him in an exchange with uh, Senator Mitt Romney, and he was pushing back against the partial birth abortion. And uh, Becerra said that we can find common ground. And Mitt Romney said, mm, not on this issue. We can't. 
No, I, I think yeah, I think Romney's got that one right, and and I think the other concerns about Bracera is uh, some of the wheeling and dealing and the political connections he he brings. Uh, you know, is he is he the most qualified given his background to to lead a health agency? Right. Uh, he seems to be more politically motivated uh, in, in some respects, and um, and. It's it, look, <laughs> when Republicans lost those two seats in Georgia. I mean, they knew it was going to be an uphill battle to uh, to block many of of Biden's nominees. And so far, Republicans have actually supported Biden's nominees uh, to the extent that I did not expect. I, I thought a lot a lot of these votes would be um, much more narrow. Uh, really, we've not seen that at all. Uh, some of the the big nominees who've made their way through. Uh, for Secretary of Defense and Secretary of the Treasury have been overwhelming, uh, so have received overwhelming support. And this is what typically happens, Bill. <laughs> Republicans tend to be more deferential to a, the president's nominees than Democrats are to a Republican's nominees. Just look at the numbers for yourself. The numbers don't lie. And uh, it's the same thing with Supreme Court nominees. Uh, when a Republican president nominates a Supreme Court justice, it's always a hard fought battle. When a Democrat seems to do it, you know, they you know, we'll get at least 60 votes or more. And so uh, it's uh, going to be interesting to watch uh, to see what happens. Uh, these uh, these two nominees, uh, Tandon and Bracera, are, are, are two of the ones that are the most controversial and uh, and might have a hard time getting through. At the Daily Signal, there's a, a great article called How Christians Can Respond to Today's Crisis in America, written by, let's see, what's this? Oh, Rob Bluey. How interesting. <laughs> this well, I, I, this I want to know more about. Yes, well, I uh, had the opportunity to interview Bishop Garland Hunt. Um, he is a pastor in the Metro Atlanta area, and uh, and Bishop Hunt has um, has recently uh, written a book, and uh, that that book is um, is is called Crisis in America: A Christian Response. And so we talked about it, and he had some really outstanding advice, uh, particularly as we're in the season of Lent. And what all of us um, can do in terms of our part, of course, uh, you know, the, the bishop uh, goes through and he he reflects on some of the the challenges we faced over the course of the past year, uh, both in terms of the pandemic and the riots and and uh, and the divisive election that we've gone through. Uh, but he provides, I thought, what was really uh, really helpful advice. Um, you know, coming from uh, an urban area, obviously, you know, he is um, he's talking to people who are are, are not necessarily seeing things uh, always the same way. And uh, and I thought that um, particularly, Bill, something you and I've talked about is how his church has tried to adapt to uh, to COVID and mm-hmm. continue to to worship and to reach people um, of faith uh, at this time. It's been a struggle for 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 not only him, but I think all of us. Uh, to make sure that uh, that we can remain re- retain that connection. In fact, at five, <laughs> when we're done on the the interview, I've got a Bible study with uh, with, with my church. So Sweet. I think that um, you know we're all finding creative ways to do it through Zoom, and we're all eager to get back in person uh, and be to do it safely. Uh, but I thought his uh, his advice was was really helpful. And um, and and you know to make sure that uh, even if uh, we're not able to worship together in person, that we're still maintaining that connection with with Jesus and and or whatever God we worship. And uh, and I thought uh, you know talking to a, a pastor on the podcast is uh, is a bit unusual. I think for the Daily Signal, we tend to focus more on on policy and politics. But it was a good uh, good break from the norm. Mm-hmm. Rob, what other stories have your interest? In our well, remaining few minutes, you know, uh, I just have to, you know, give a shout out to another broadcaster who's uh, who lost his life uh, 
uh, last week after a battle with cancer. That's Rush Limbaugh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are, there are many people who, who viewed him as divisive. Uh, I had the opportunity to uh, to work with his team uh, not too long ago, Bill. Uh, the Heritage Foundation Foundation gave Rush its Titan of Conservatism Award in December, and uh, he was just so honored and and grateful for for that recognition. We're going to be naming our radio studios um, after Rush for for the contributions that that he's made. And so, uh, you know, I think that again, for those who may not have have liked Rush's politics, um, he brought a certain uh, level of entertainment. Uh, to the radio, and he also did wonders uh, for talk radio hosts, uh, probably for generations to come, in terms of saving uh, that medium, that AM dial, at a time when uh, when it was struggling. So, uh, so you know, hats off to, to Rush, and we remember him fondly. Mm-hmm. And Rob, just to circle back to uh, a story we started with, uh, with the uh, CPAC coming up, has it already yes. started, or is yes. it, it is is it just this weekend? How many days is it? Uh, CPAC is a, a four-day conference. It'll be uh, running through Sunday, starts on Thursday, runs through Sunday. Uh, President Trump will be giving the closing speech on Sunday, as he uh, has been known to do in, in years past. Uh, this will be his first public appearance since leaving office, and he's expected to talk about the future of the Republican Party. Um, he'll be joined by some other potential uh, contenders for the 2024 nomination if he decides to run, and uh, and it should be an interesting event. We'll have a team there, uh, my colleague Rachel Bell Judas from the Daily Signal will be on hand uh, for interviews. So I encourage your your listeners to keep an eye on the Daily Signal for uh, the latest from CPAC. Again, it's in Orlando, Florida this year. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the first time that CPAC has been held outside of the D.C. area because of COVID. Uh, they're expecting a smaller crowd, uh, about 3,000 compared to the typical, you know, nine or 10,000. And uh, and I think it'll be, uh, you know, a, a welcome change to hear, uh, hear some people. I hope everybody stays safe, including my colleagues and, uh, and Bill, you know, it's uh, it's always a great event. We've had a long relationship ever since the Daily Signal started. We've always had a presence at CPAC, and uh, it's a great place to to network and uh, and get the latest buzz on what's happening in conservatism. Mm-hmm. And Rob, what's happening at the Supreme Court right now? Well, the if you're referring, there's a a, a big contentious uh, case. Uh, the Supreme Court decided not to hear a case coming out of Pennsylvania regarding the election. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas uh, had a dissent. Uh, that has uh, has really uh, stirred up a lot of uh, attention in Washington uh, because he felt that the court should have taken the case uh, for a very simple reason. The Constitution says that state legislatures are the ones should, that should make uh, rules regarding elections, and that's not what happened in Pennsylvania. And he feels that it was important to clarify this. Now, he didn't have enough uh, support, though. He only got um, uh, Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito. So mm-hmm. only three of them said they wanted to take the case when they needed uh, probably Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh to go along with them. So we'll keep an eye on that one. A big decision. Interesting. Enjoy your Bible study with your church at uh, right now, and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Bill. Hey, I will. Man. Take care. Rob Bluey's been my guest. He is the executive editor at The Daily Signal. When we come back, we're going to talk to Patrick Prill. He's written a book called Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. We'll be right back.
do we introduce Jesus to someone who is absolutely convinced there is no God? All right, that's going to be a problem. And I think our my guest is going to help us uh, sort through that. Patrick Pearl's written a book called Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. Patrick, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for saying that. Uh, let's talk about this this first question I threw out there. How do we talk about Jesus when someone is absolutely convinced there's no God? Well, I think with any conversation, you you obviously need to get a feel for where the person is. And if you know the person well, it's obviously much, much easier than if it's someone that you don't know particularly well. But you, you preface any conversation with kindness, grace, patience, and uh, and you try to display wisdom, uh, convey truth and love without uh, coming off as judgmental. And that's, that's pretty hard in any conversation, much less a conversation about God. Mm-hmm. Patrick, where do atheists get m- stuck most often? Is it with the presence of evil or, or injustice? What, where, where do they get stuck? Well, that's a great question. And as I read through a lot of the atheist stories, because I, I actually did try to get a feel for who they were. And I read through the stories of many former atheists. And the thing that I found was that there were about eight major reasons. And I was actually surprised by that. Um, one of them is disappointment. You know, God didn't answer their prayers or respond to their, their pain. Um, and that kind of relates to the whole issue of pain and suffering in the world. In some cases, it was the poor witness of people who claimed to believe in God. Um, Ouch. And if you, yes, that that's hurts. a big one. Yeah. And in a few cases, I I call it kind of an, an orphan mentality. And uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who's probably the most commonly known atheist of the last century, was actually a Lutheran pastor's son. And his dad died when he was about five or six years old. And so I haven't psychoanalyzed Nietzsche by any stretch of the imagination, but you do you do wonder whether that had an effect on his perspective of God. And you have others that it's kind of an intellectual perspective of smart people don't believe in God, and mm-hmm. I, I think I'm smart, therefore I'm not going to believe in God. And there's a few others. Naturalism is a worldview. You, you have people who shake their fist at God periodically. Um, and early in the 1900s, Marxism was actually a really, really big factor. But the thing that surprised me was that there really were many factors and so it really behooves us to get to know people's stories. So true. When you bring up uh, Marxism, it's, it's interesting if you would talk a little bit about, you know, even atheist nations. I think of the Soviet Union and uh, the People's Republic of China. Um, what, what must it be like there? Well, I, it was interesting because I read Peter Hitchens' story. Mm-hmm. And Peter, Peter's the brother of Christopher Hitchens. Oh, wow. So both of these young men were raised in British boarding schools. Their father was a British uh, naval officer who's gone most of the time, so they spent most of their time at school. They both had reached the conclusion that God does not exist by about the age of 15. They both embraced communism and Marxism. Um, 
And for a, a fairly long period of time, they followed the same path. Um, Christopher became a very, very hard, uh, ardent atheist. Peter, after about 20 years of considering people who believed in God to be, um, I guess, intellectually off the rails, actually changed his mind. And it wasn't the determinant factor, but one of the things that really had an impact on him was he spent several years as a journalist in the USSR. And he saw what it was like to live in a country that chose to not believe in God. Mm -hmm. And from his perspective, the, the hopelessness, the hardness, the, the, the despair of the nation was a picture of the world that he, he chose to not embrace. And, and actually, that's one of the things that, that has caused him to, to hold hard to now a theistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. And he returned, returned to the Church of England and, and uh, had a very different story than his brother. Do atheists have an afterlife concept? Uh, most do not. I mean, Bertrand Russell believed that, you know, when you die, you rot, and mm-hmm. that's it. Um, most of them would, would share that perspective. Um, the one person I would point to that I think is interesting is Sam Harris, who's a very popular atheist these days. And Sam Harris, while he claims atheism as a worldview, points to several mystics as wise sages. And just out of curiosity, I looked up a couple of these mystics. One was Shankara, the other was Padmasambhava, and Padmasambhava, rather. And both of them were about the 8th century. But the interesting thing about both of them is, while one was a Buddhist and one was a Hindu, they both claimed to believe in eternal existence. And so what it appears that Sam Harris wants is he wants eternal existence, but he wants it apart from a personal God. Mm -hmm. So I I just found that kind of fascinating because he doesn't fit within the norm of most people that you consider to be an atheist. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, When I think of this line out of uh, Pascal's book, Pensees, he said, and I'll, I'll do my best to quote this, but he said, we are all making a high-stakes life commitment to a particular faith view, and we're betting our eternal destiny on it. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as Christians, absolutely. we know where we placed our faith, but for atheists who say that they don't believe in any afterlife, it, not only is it horribly sad, but I wonder to what degree are they just so blinded by the enemy that they can't see anything? I, I do think they're blinded um, definitely by the enemy, but... What's happening in, in America um, is we're being blinded by worldview. And so I'll give you an example. My kids uh, were all taught in school in the fifth grade that uh, Greek gods and goddesses were mythology. Simultaneously, they're being taught naturalism, basically that the world exists apart from any supernatural um, and that nature is responsible for its own complexity. So we're here because of nature and nature alone. So I find it fascinating that, you know, kids are being taught gods and goddesses are myth while simultaneously being taught a purely naturalistic worldview. And it's not malicious necessarily on the part of the teachers because that's all they're allowed to do. What, what teachers are not allowed to do is say that, excuse me, 
nature actually is incredible evidence to support the existence of God. And if you allow these teachers to present that evidence to the kids, I think it would have a dramatically different perspective um, on the kids' outlook toward God. So, Patrick, has atheism evolved? I know this is kind of a dumb question, but has it evolved over the last 30 years? I mean, it seemed like at one point atheists wanted to be left alone. Now they want to be evangelists for atheism. Yeah, they do. And it's, uh, they call themselves basically new atheists. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, it's interesting because when you look at what they actually say, it's mostly just a repackaging of what atheists have been saying for 150 years. Um, it's basically rooted in uh, naturalistic materialism. Um, it's based upon the idea of reductionism, and that's basically that nature creates its own complexity. And uh, the difference is, is that many of them become so vocal, uh, and in some cases condescending, mean, and rude. And they've gotten a lot of TV time, and they've sold a lot of books. So what they've gotten, um, I guess, very good at is be, being vocal, being seen, and being heard. Hmm. And if there's a dollar to make out there, they're going to go make it. Tell me a, a profile of who the, the new atheist is. Are they college-educated? Are they not college-educated? Well, yeah, in, in America, the average profile is actually a young white male from the Northeast or the Northwest. Hmm. And, and it- you know, that, that's obviously kind of a median view. There's a lot of people who are atheists, but that, that is actually kind of the, the median profile. That is, that is interesting, I'm, and, and I'm not surprised. I hate to say it, but I'm not surprised. Um, were you going to say something? No, you're you're oh. you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I thought it sounded like you were saying something, uh, but I just didn't want to interrupt. Um, no, let's talk about uh, supernatural occurrences and things that uh, we talk to atheists about, and when they hear our hearts, how we pray to a loving Father and God hears our prayers and answers them. Is that just, is that nonsense to them? I, I think it is. I actually had a coworker who was critical of President Bush because President Bush claimed that he heard from God. And from her perspective, anyone who hears voices has got to have something wrong with them mentally. So again, from her perspective, it just, it made no sense. And it's not that she was being mean or rude or anything. It just made no sense. Um, and, and that's one of the challenges of naturalism. Naturalism says that miracles can't happen because miracles don't happen. Naturalism says that prayer is basically, uh, you know, kind of aimless, wishful thinking because there's no one there listening. Um, but the sad thing to me is, is if we allowed our kids, high school, middle school, college, to actually see the evidence and hear the evidence, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of them would reach the same conclusion that we have. And um, the challenge is, is that many churches, many schools, even Christian schools, don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Are atheists mad at God or mad at religion? Uh, both. Okay. <laughs> I think in the, in the case of Christopher Hitchens, you know, he, he wrote a number of books uh, in support of atheism. But uh, 
his his most widely known book is called God is Not Great, and it really has very little to do with God. It's all about religion. It's it's a an exhaustive rant about religion and all of the harm that religion does in the world and how religion is man-made and religion is this and religion is that. And what way I would kind of classify Christopher is he seems to be more cut out of the mold of Friedrich Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. And Nietzsche basically rejected the idea of Christian morality. He didn't want an authority telling him what to do. And, and Hitchens seems to be more cut out of that mold. Um, he may have had, had other good reasons. Some of his criticisms of religion were actually you know, probably truthful. I, I don't disagree with some of them. Mm-hmm. But the overwhelming majority were just emotional rants. Let me take a break. Patrick Prill is my guest. He's written a book called Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. We'll be back in just a minute. with Patrick Prill has written a book called Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. I would agree. So uh, do most atheists recognize Jesus as a historical figure, Patrick? I think most actually do. Um, They try to hedge their bets in many cases, um, but it's really hard to uh, refute Josephus, Suetonius, Tacitus, Mm -hmm. uh, Pliny, and a variety of other historical sources. It's so what they really try to do is attack the historicity of Jesus's story rather than the fact that he existed. Um, and a source that I actually like to use a lot is Celsus. He was a early second century Greek philosopher who wrote a book called True Discourse. And Celsus was interesting because he was vociferously attacking Christianity, you know, a just intensely attacking it. And, uh, but he never attacked whether Jesus existed or not. He readily acknowledged that Jesus existed, he, that he was a, a teacher, that people followed him, that they thought he was the Messiah. He said that the, his followers were fishermen and tax collectors. He said that Jesus was reported to have done miracles, that Jesus was reported to have risen from the dead, and that he was executed um, by the Jews as punishment. So it's fascinating that even in the early second century, um, a very, very critical, critical source really doesn't refute Jesus's life and, and the major events reported about his life. He just attributed them to other things. How well-versed in the Bible are atheists? Because it seems like if they're going to argue it, that, you know, I think Hitchens and Dawkins, they knew, they knew Scripture pretty well. Well, I, I actually spent a lot of time going through Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Mm-hmm. And the thing that surprised me is it's obvious that he's read the Bible. But he was talking about the book of Judges and complaining about the morality in the book of Judges. But he missed the entire point of the book of Judges, which was that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and not following God. And then 
Elsewhere in the book, he attributed to the founding of, of Christianity to the Apostle Paul. He said that Christianity was made the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire by Constantine, which it was not. It was Theodosius later in the, in the fourth century. So even though he knew about Christianity and he was read related to Christianity, most of the, the key things that he had to say about it were just, in fact, wrong. That, that's so interesting. When I think of people that are on such a mission, I, I think there has to, it has to be uh, spiritually motivated from the enemy because let's say, for example, I am a tooth fairy atheist. I just don't believe there's a tooth fairy. I'm right. not going to spend much of my energy arguing with people about the tooth fairy. Right. And exactly so why would you, if you're Richard Dawkins, declare on war on God if God doesn't exist? It really is nonsensical. Unless there's uh, an ego-driven purpose, and I can sell a lot of books and get invited mm-hmm. to a lot of uh, places where I'm going to be on TV and uh, be popular and have influence with people. Yeah, he actually sold 3.3 million copies of The God Delusion. Wow. And if that, if that doesn't kind of cause listeners to take, you know, take pause, then I don't know what will. Mm-hmm. But 3.3 million copies of that one book. And... Um, you know, and he he berated people who believe in God as have, you know being intellectually inferior, and that the intellectual elite do not believe in God. All those kind of things. But if if I were to assume, you know, why he is so opposed to God, I think that he, as part of what he calls the intellectual elite, mm-hmm. sees belief in God as an impediment to the spread of the embracing of every scientific theory that they want to enumerate. I think he sees Christianity, religion, and belief in God as some sort of impediment to science, is Mm. is what he seems to think. Yeah. It's interesting, Patrick, that I've gotten older. I think when I was 23 years old, if somebody said to me, I'm too smart to believe in God, I'm not sure what my response would have been. But at my age now, when I hear that line, I think, no, I know a lot of smart people, and I don't put you in that category. Yeah, yeah. The, The irony to me is when you look at Richard Dawkins' claim, that intelligent people generally don't believe in God and less intelligent people do, I go, well, just exactly who are you talking about? <laughs> because, you know, America is pretty intelligent, and 90 to 93 percent of people in America believe in God. And then you look at college graduates in America, 89 percent believe in God. Mm-hmm. You look at undergraduate university professors in America, they're pretty smart. You know, most of them have to have at least a master's, if not not a Ph.D., and roughly 75 percent of them believe in God. So you start asking, Richard, what is this tiny little club that you're talking exactly. about? Exactly. Uh, this intellectual elite. Mm-hmm. Patrick, what is mysticism? And was Sam Harris, was he involved in that? Yeah, Sam, as I had said, he, he kind of seemed to embrace the idea of ultimate existence and ultimate reality apart from God. So while he claimed to be an atheist, he seems to really have embraced mysticism. And he's a big you know, advocate of uh, Eastern philosophy, uh, meditation, and, and that type of thing. Um, but again, the irony to me is, is the mystics that he pointed to mm-hmm. actu- actually said that you should worship multiple gods and goddesses, and that worshiping many gods will then 
ultimately lead you to God, which then leads you to ultimate reality. They had religious scriptures of their own. They prayed. They had miracles. So my reaction is, Sam, you're pointing to these mystics and claiming that mysticism is rational, but religion is not. But the mysticism you're pointing to is religion. It's just religion without a personal God. Mm -hmm. And it's eternal life, eternal existence apart from God. So, Sam, what you're saying is what makes no sense. Patrick, do you have a story that you could share with my listeners about uh, your journey connecting to an atheist and how over time that uh, came about to them leaving their atheistic views and coming to faith in Christ? I'd be glad to. One one of them, actually, it's even a more extreme story than atheism. Um, It was a young Satanist. So I used to go out street witnessing in Atlanta years ago. And we kept encountering this young man in this one area of Atlanta that was called Little Five Points. It's sort of the, the Greenwich Village of Atlanta at the time. A lot of young people hanging out, um, a, lot, a lot of street people, uh, very kind of eclectic area. And we kept running into this young man, and you know he had the head of the beast on his back, pentagram, and you know, very hard, very angry you know, and, you know, we would try to have conversations with him and, you know, it's very, very difficult. And we reached a conclusion very quickly that what this guy needed wasn't a sermon. What this guy needed wasn't, you know, some logical presentation. He just needed to be loved on. And so for, for weeks and weeks, you know, the various teams that we sent out, we would continually run into him. We would talk to him. We would love on him. We'd tell him that God loves him. We'd tell him that Jesus loves him. And as we kind of got to know his story, we saw that his pain and his hurt is what was separating him from God. It was separating him from God to such a great degree that not only he, he basically declared God to be his enemy and Satan his friend. Mm. And that's about as extreme as you can get. Well, one day we were out and you know, we were expecting to run into him and we ran into his girlfriend who we had known for months. And we asked her, well, where is, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so. And she said, oh, well, he got saved, cut his hair and moved to the suburbs. <laughs> wow. And, and the cool thing about the story to me is there were so many of us that were sharing the love of God with him and talking to him and and showing him not just that this was theoretical but that you know we were seeking to be God's hands and feet and loving him and showing him and i don't know who led this young guy to the lord mm. wow but, so, but but somebody did but the cool thing about the story to me and this is what i would encourage everybody in and this is what billy graham used to say when you talk to someone you don't know if it's the, you're the first person, the second person, the 15th person. And, and I don't know what the real number is, but let's say that the average person needs to have 10, 15 encounters you know, before they yield their life to the Lord. You don't know which one of those encounters you are, but everything, every single one of them is just as important as the other. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a powerful story. Thinking about Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, some of these other atheists who are pretty well-known authors, 
I wonder if they've had as much impact or if celebrities today who claim how cool they are and that and they have no room for God and they're atheists, I wonder if they're not doing more damage than some of these authors. I think the the uh, celebrities are probably doing as much, if not more. Yeah, I would be guessing uh, that as well. Because they have such a big fan base. Yeah. And and they say things without really thinking through them and without really, you know, they, they have their own stories and, and reasons for saying what they're saying, but they have a huge influence over all of their their fan base. Mm-hmm. Patrick, thank you for doing the show. It's really nice to meet you and uh, your book is very interesting. Thank you for uh, coming on the program. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, Patrick Prill has been my guest, and his book is Things Atheists Say That Simply Make No Sense. We're going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to have a full hour with Carrie Heddington. We're going to talk about Jesus, which is my favorite subject. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.